Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, sponsored by First National. I am your host, Adam Pawatic, sitting here with Aaron Cameron. Our guest today is Abhishek Sinha, a partner of the Financial Services Advisory Practice of Ernst & Young. And we are going to talk about blockchain in real estate today. It's a, a topic we've been looking forward to for a while. So we're very happy that Abhishek has joined us today. Welcome to the show, Abhishek. Thank you very much. So most topics that we cover, Aaron and I have at least a, a rudimentary, if not a, a competent understanding of the subject matter. But I say today would be one of the least knowledgeable topics for Aaron and I that we've ever covered. Yeah which is great. We've got Abhishek here because he would be at the other end of the spectrum. He understands yeah. this inside. Well, we've been joking before the show that our ignorance will help the listener kind of follow along because we'll be asking all the stupid questions. Like, <laughs> so wait a minute, isn't it the same as Bitcoin? Then why don't we just jump right into it? Abhishek, you know, we should really start from the very beginning, right? So blockchain technology was created by, what's the guy's name? The who is? It's a synonym. We don't know who it is, but it was basically... Um, Satoshi... Satoshi Nakamoto? Yeah. Satoshi Nakamoto, who we don't know who he is. We don't know what it is, but it was for cryptocurrency. And do you want to just... Let's just start there. Why Why was it created? What was the initial motivation behind the, the technology? Well, it was created right after the financial crisis of 2007. And you know, for anyone who's gone and read the first white paper... It is almost like an anarchist manifesto, someone who's really, really upset with the way the financial system has worked and, you know, not being able to sort of cope with the type of challenges this has thrown up. And so, you know, this individual or this entity really wanted to have an independent sort of currency which would not be dominated by any central agency and therefore would be, you know, free theoretically from manipulation and control. And that was the genesis of it. It was like, let's have a world currency which no central bank or government actually influences. And was that the first implement? Is there a separation between cryptocurrency and blockchain? But was that the first implementation of blockchain technology? Yes. Was Okay. That's Okay. And then I guess you get you can get into the, the sordid past of the, the Silk Road and everything else that people yeah. freely associate with Bitcoin. But... The technology is is much, much more than that. And if anything, 20 years from now, we're going to look back and think we've got a pretty rudimentary comprehension and, and usage of it now. Just for your background, how did you arrive at this point where uh, you're an expert in blockchain? Oh, expert is relatively speaking. I've been in the space for the last three years and I've been leading a Canadian blockchain practice for the last year or so. You know, my first interest in this technology was really by accident. So you're a Bitcoin millionaire? No. <laughs> Definitely not. I wish I had invested at that time, but I didn't. By nature, I'm fairly curious about new things and, and how things evolve. And you know, this was one of the things which was just out there. And it had a very different view of the world. And obviously, over a period of time, my understanding is sort of improved. Mm -hmm. And I see it very differently than what I saw it for right at the beginning. But some of the first use cases which we sort of postulated, you know, in our offices around, okay, how can we use this? What What is this thing going to be used for? Are the use cases, which are actually the most popular use cases today, is a lot more money being spent on trying to solve problems in banking like trade finance and, and payments related problems. So in your practice now, who are the, the clients, or if you can't speak about clients, industries that are most interested in this technology? I think it's, it's evolved over a longer period of time. Financial services is the first, was the first, which truly started looking at and adopting it because of whatever reasons, you know, Silk Road being one of them. But today, retail, logistics, supply chain, digital media, all of these industries are, you know, very actively looking at deploying blockchain-based solutions in their environments. What, so just because I don't know what it is, so I figure most of our listeners don't. What is the Silk Road you guys are, are referring to? Oh, it was, uh, it was an infant, I actually read a book on it recently. So this is one area of Bitcoin I know very well. It was a an dark web online forum for trafficking in 
guns and drugs primarily completely illegal and completely underground. But the, the common currency then used was Bitcoin for the exact reason that it's not traceable. So you would go out, buy some Bitcoin, go online, buy whatever illicit uh, items you were in the, in the shopping for, and you'd pay in Bitcoin. And I've actually thought since things, the time Bitcoin was trading in the, you know, the hundred dollar range or less when it first came out, there was probably some very shady people who are very rich now because they forgot about a hundred Bitcoin sitting in an account somewhere. And of course the value shot through the roof now, um, but it was the subject of a you know major FBI investigation and a big public takedown of the gentleman uh, running it, who then got a massive jail sentence. And it's probably still a Bitcoin millionaire. <laughs> well, he's, he's, he's waited a long time before you can enjoy the yeah, spoils. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So uh, clearly blockchain and Bitcoin are, are married to each other, but at some point they, you know, separated or decoupled. So who or when, when was it starting to, what did the industries or did, did, did you and your team start realizing that, you know, blockchain can be used for different purposes than just cryptocurrency? I think. And sorry, know. sorry, just for context, like Bitcoin came out in the nineties, right? Or sorry, 2000 and 2008. Yes. 2008. So it's only been 10 years. Right. Right. I think, you know, in the public consciousness, blockchain really came into being with the advent of, you know, platforms like Ethereum and others. You know, obviously, folks had been looking at that technology, trying to sort of understand how it works and what other applications they might have for it for quite some time, uh, even before that. But the first few sort of experiments weren't spectacular successes. And, and Ethereum really, with its dApps functions, put in the spotlight, which allowed, you know, individual developers to actually start developing dApps for it, start using it for different purposes, and creating a framework which was, you know, open source and sort of got the community excited and interested about it. So just for clarification, Ethereum is... It's a blockchain platform. Okay. That allows the basic technology to be implemented with whatever usage the particular designer sees fit. Yeah. And that's the distributed app part of it. Okay. Uh, just as a, I guess a foundation of knowledge for, well, our listeners and for ourselves, can we cover just the, the basics of the technology? You've already referenced D apps. Maybe we can cover that tokenization and then how the technology actually functions. Yeah, sure. I mean, here's an easy way to think about it. Like, in our digital world today, we're sort of inundated with data and we're doing so many things with data. But we've got a problem. And the problem is data asymmetry across, you know, processes and people or organizations in a value chain. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is when people interact and they, you know, exchange goods and services, they spend a lot of time validating whether the data of which they're working is the source of truth or not. Is it the right data? And everyone has their own perspective and their own source of truth of data. And what blockchain sort of fundamentally helps eliminate is this data silo problem. And it provides this uniform single source of truth of the data and allows different or independent parties to actually interact with each other. So that's number one. So imagine if, you know, you as a company which is providing mortgages, the lawyer who's, you know, uh, you know, doing the transaction, the broker who's selling the mortgages, the, you know, other parties involved in a real estate transaction. Imagine how much easier it would be for all of you to sort of conduct business with each other if you were working off the same version of data and you could independently validate that that data is correct. That's where the power of blockchain comes in. When we start thinking about distributed apps, distributed apps, from a very simple sense, refer to the processes which you would conduct on top of that data. So your own business logic, what do you want to do with it? So the lawyer, they may have a distributed app which helps, you know, generate all the paperwork required for that particular transaction and, you know, all the things the lawyer needs to do. Versus you, from a financing perspective, need to do ABC things and, and therefore your processes are different from the lawyer's processes. So your D app is different from the lawyer's D app, but they're still operating from the same set of data. So, you know, the process of reconciliation and sending faxes and waiting for confirmations and all those things sort of go away because that all gets solved at the blockchain layer. 
the other thing you asked about was tokenization. And that's a really, really powerful and very interesting concept is tokens are nothing but digital representation of physical assets. So this bottle of water could be a token. You know, my laptop could be a token. A house could be a token. And the interesting thing about tokens is they are non-fungible in nature. And what that means is that a token can only exist in one place at one time, one state at one time. So you can't make a copy of my token and have that token a distinct identity. So it's just like a dollar bill, right? So if I take out a bill from my wallet, that has a serial number associated with it. If that dollar bill is in my pocket, it can't be in yours, mm-hmm. right? You may know that the dollar bill is in my pocket and you may have a ledger which says that this dollar bill, this serial number sits in Abhishek's pocket. And that's different from you actually owning that dollar bill. So that's what tokenization does. So that's why, you know, from a real estate perspective, if you think about land registries, ownerships, titles, insurance, all of those attributes can really become unique tokens, which then people can verify where they are, what do they act on, and then who owns them. So, you know, there are countries like Georgia, Malta, Estonia have started going down this path of, you know, how do you combat real estate fraud? And they're using the blockchain tokenization to actually combat that. Right, like ownership fraud. Ownership fraud, right? Because constant verification of the validity of a document or ownership. And because it's distributed, it is constantly being verified throughout the process. Yeah. And, and as soon as you start tokenizing physical assets, now you can add different attributes to that. So if I have a house which is represented as a token on the blockchain, I can then have a mortgage associated with that house as a second token, which is tied to the first one. So anyone who sees that title token knows that there's a mortgage on it because they can see the mortgage token. Anyone who sees that title token can then go and see, well, is there insurance on this or not? Is there an insurance token tied to it? Have the taxes been paid? That could represent another attribute which is associated with it. So if you if you really start thinking about it, now this data token which we have, uh, this real estate token, can have you know as many attributes as you want, either mandatory or optional. And does it solve the problem of digital documents being able to be manipulated and forged and... Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So if we think about, you know, from from a bank's perspective or a financier's perspective, you want to know that there is title insurance on this particular title. How do you do that? The way you do that today is you contact the title insurance agency who then registers the title, sends you a document saying this has been done. And you're only dependent on that because... You know, they have their separate data source. You have your own separate data source. Now you made a copy to say that thing exists. And by the way, when it when it lapses and it needs to be refreshed, you have to go out, do another process to make sure that happens. Because the copy that we hold is now invalid because it hasn't been constantly verified as truth. Exactly. Because what happens is when you make a copy of data in the digital world, every copy of data has its own life. You could do whatever you want with it without impacting that. Nobody else knows that. And that's what, you know, very simply blockchain solves is that now you've got this token which represents that everyone can see the validity of that token if they have the rights to see the validity of that token. I'm in a personal quandary right now. I'm trying to sell tickets for an event on Friday that are just PDF tickets and I'm trying to do it online and nobody trusts me for that very reason that I could duplicate it endlessly. And uh, you can sell it 50 times. Yeah. Yeah. And the tokenization would solve that problem. Yeah, for sure. Well, hopefully it happens before Friday. So let me back up a little bit because I'm still, my brain's spinning and maybe because it's early in the morning, but I don't want to, I don't want to go back to Bitcoin, but then I think a lot of people that are listening, that's their sole understanding of the technology. So I'm trying to, let's, let's try to get out of that, but I, I need to use it as an example. So Bitcoin right now, the whole concept sort of independent verification is that you've got all these users connected to the blockchain. So if I sell something to you and, and you get a new token, there's a whole bunch of users validating that that now is your token. So therefore it cannot be replicated. And that's part of the power is that now on thousands 
thousands of individual computers, there's record of that one transaction, and therefore it cannot be used for fraud or, or whatever, right? Because it's, it's been independently verified. Now, those computers that are doing that independent verification, they're actually earning something, right? Yes. Now, in, in the Bitcoin world, they mine, right, the blockchain, I guess. Yep. And by being somebody that independently verifies all these transactions, they earn Bitcoin for yep. it. Now, removing that concept of Bitcoin to something like a land registry, who is the individual that's now validating the independent or doing the independent verification? And am I earning revenue? Like, would I say, okay, I put my hand up and say, I'm going to connect my computer to the registrar blockchain and I want to earn a revenue for validating the independent transactions? Or... You know, what does the business model look like? I think there are evolving business models. You know, there's there are public blockchains like Ethereum mainnet and, and the Bitcoin network where anyone can actually uh, set up a node and start mining Bitcoin and start earning for transaction validation. And then there are permissioned blockchains. And permissioned blockchains is you have five interested parties who may who may have a stake in that you know, value exchange or the process which is being conducted. And each one of them has a very strong incentive to actually you know, uh, do this. So going back to the real estate example, which I was talking about is if your lawyers and your bankers and your land registry guys and your insurance guys were to come together and say, today, in order to run my process to fund a transaction for a client end to end, it takes, you know, three days to do it. And there are so many processes involved in people. There's a cost to that, which every one of these parties bear. The incentive for them to get on a blockchain is that those costs would be exponentially lower when you start thinking from a blockchain perspective, because now they all want to validate. Everyone is interested in making sure they're working on the right data. If they can agree to, you know, here's how we're going to reach consensus on what is the right transaction, then for the bankers, it's a margin game. If they reduce operating expenses by 20 basis points, straight away goes into their bottom line. You know, for the lawyer, it's the overhead and administrative expenses. They make they keep more of their fees. So everyone is actually incentivized to make their ecosystems better. Now, turning this problem from public blockchain perspective, I think there are many, many... So hurdles we need to cross before we can start doing private transactions on public blockchains. The first one is privacy. And then there are so many things which are going on in the blockchain world today, which are trying to combat and solve that problem of how do you conduct public transactions, private transactions on public blockchains? Because the strength of the blockchain is that it's fully public. The strength of the blockchain is fully public, but you don't want... Client A to know that you funded him at two and a half percent, and client B at two point six percent, because now you're going to have to go back and explain why this mm. happened, right? What you do want to do is you could say that you funded client A, you funded client B, but nobody knows the details of that funding. How much was it for? What was the term? What were the conditions associated with that funding? Because it's nobody's business; it's yours and the client's business. But so, m- but myself and the client want to have access to that data still yeah. on the blockchain. Yes. So so There's, that's the so it's a private permission it's a public permission based blockchain it's a public blockchain which has the ability to maintain the privacy of private transactions hmm. you mentioned i think it was malta and a few other countries that are are they looking at this or are they actually implemented some of these systems to combat fraud i think uh, the most advanced right now is estonia they've done so much on the blockchain to sort of combat fraud. The, the country of Burkina Faso, I think they had, or Sierra Leone actually had their elections conducted on the blockchain so they could actually combat election fraud, right? We're talking to uh, a few countries who um, actually want to put digital identity on the blockchain because they have a big identity fraud problem. So trying to combat a bunch of these problems, these are the things which are in motion you know, from our perspective, 2016 and 17 and the early part of 2018 was the time when everyone was doing POCs and prototypes and things like that. 18, 19 and 20 is when we will see sort of full scale production rollouts of blockchain based ecosystems actually impacting large sections of population or companies. So something at the forefront of that, as you just mentioned, Sierra Leone. Was it considered that their election was as free of tampering as one could hope? 
as one could hope. Okay, so it was a successful execution. Yeah, it was, yes. Okay, so there is. Uh, so then uh, that makes sense then that you're going to see larger scale execution on all these fronts. On that concept of us seeing this uh, coming into practice over the next couple of years, this is obviously going to have major disruptive effect on you know a number of industries. But given this, this is a real estate crowd, who amongst the you know various silos of operators of real estate are going to be most impacted? Aaron and I will fall on the sword now. We already do know that lenders are uh, you know part of the <laughs> part of the equation of people that will be massively disrupted. I guess part of our job is to try to work through that. But who else in the in the the fields of real estate do you think are going to feel it first? You're, you know, if you're talking three years out, who's going to feel it in the next three years, not the next ten? Well. It depends on where it starts, right? And and you know who goes first. The impact or domino is going to fall in that order. So, if I'm a lender and I'm looking at this this problem here, I look at it more as an opportunity. Right? Going back to what I said is, you know, the lending business is razor thin margins, and anything that you do on operating costs is going to go straight to your bottom line, right? Lenders who aggressively pursue this are the ones who are going to actually be more successful at this. And as as they start being successful, you're going to see the lawyers are in a really interesting position because they do a lot of different services, which are trust-based services. And blockchain essentially is a trustless environment. So, you know, the opportunity for the lawyers is a very different opportunity set. When we talk about blockchain and smart contracts, you know, smart contract or code in that case is the law because you agree on a set of conditions which get codified in a smart contract and they self-execute. I don't want to say it because I can hear all the listeners out there that are lawyers or friends of mine that are lawyers, but it sounds like this is going to be a real challenge for them to maintain their position in the, certainly in the transaction marketplace where they're, as you say, controlling the trust between multiple different partners. Yeah, I mean, uh, law firms, you know, some some of the larger law firms I've, I've spoken to, they are actively looking at how do they start providing smart contract as a core set of their services. So either lawyers need to learn to code or the lawyers need to go and hire coders who are going to help code for them. Is the concept of disruption doesn't necessarily mean we're all going to be unemployed. It just uh, means, uh, you know, adapt or die. Which yes. is one of the basics of you know good business practice. Right. So part of the challenge I'm having is, and let's let's stick with this. Maybe the the intermediary um, where the lawyers and the transactions, and, and for context, you know, I was giving the example before we went on on the air. You know, we accept a payment from like a payout of a mortgage. You know, the and it, it's a transaction. So the the purchaser takes their money out of their bank account, sends it to their lawyer's bank account. Their lawyer sends it to the vendor's lawyer's bank account. Then that lawyer sends it to us. Right to pay out our mortgage, and then we may have an investor that that whose mortgage it is that we're administering. So then we have to send it to our investor, and that process can take eight to ten hours to go from those four or five different accounts, just because it kind of gets sent and then it goes off, and these it goes into the ether for hours, and then okay, now it's in my account. And then you quickly kind of go and transact it and send it off, and then it goes off into the ether for two hours. Right, so. Now that's fine, but but and I totally appreciate that if through with blockchain technology it would happen within an instant, right? Because there would be the rules and the algorithms built in yeah. to just say yes. Once as soon as I get it, it gets transferred and it, and it happens almost instantaneously. But to create that ecosystem or that infrastructure where we're all participating, if I decide I'm going to start my blockchain and the lawyers decide they're not going to, then it, it the whole system doesn't function, right? So that's true. where does it start? How does how do you get the lawyers and the and the lenders and the insurance companies and the tax, you know, the, the municipalities all on the same page kind of to move this thing forward. Or and I, here's where I'm going with it. It sounds almost like it has to be uh, government instituted to begin with, right? Like the government has to say, I'm instituting blockchain for my registrar system and you have to just start your own and join. Like you have, there's no, no, no choice. Yeah. And that's always hard, Right. Uh, for the government to come in and say that I'm going to take an action which is going to impact the industry and all the players, like to get the the right political sort of capital. Well, that, and that's that, my, that's where that I'm having really this challenge, right? Because as a as a lender, I'm thinking this is great. I want to do this, but if I do it and I only have two lawyers out of the thirty I deal with that are participating, it really doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Or if I'm the only lender in the industry, the lawyers gonna say, well, no, like I do lots of other business with lots of other lenders, and they don't have this, so I'm not going to bother with your technology. Yeah, I I think of you know, blockchain-based solutions as, you know, less of 
the old style, I'm going to have to replace the ERP and change all my processes. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to cost, uh, you know, a few million dollars to do it. It is definitely not that. There are many easier ways. So the barriers to entry in terms of adopting the technology and actually using it are fairly low. Having said that, you know, going back to the adoption question, I think it is at the end of it from a business standpoint, an economical question. Can I make my operations far more economical and efficient by leveraging a technology which is exponential in nature? And, you know, if the answer is yes, then, you know, as a lender, you may offer incentives to, you know, your counterparties who are interested in participating through it because suddenly you're making more margin and you mm-hmm. may be willing to share that margin. Say, hey, look, you know, this lawyer or this law office, if, if they decide to get on this platform, I'm going to charge them X minus something. And that becomes an incentive for sort of people to come on board because at the end of the day, everyone sort of benefits from a more efficient ecosystem and process. And I like your the data asymmetry, right? Which is the ultimate sort of pinnacle of all of this. Yeah. I've, I've always thought that's a super inefficient means of people you know, interacting real estate is all the silos of information. They're completely walled off from each other. Obviously, you know, real estate agents try to protect the MLS endlessly for that same goal. Even if we're, you know, if we're looking at, if we're going to underwrite a deal, we get the information from somebody that might have already done the underwriting and then we take it into our little silo and we work at it. And then we provide it to, you know, CMHC if, if uh, they're going to provide insurance on a loan and then they do their work on it as well and collect their own version of data. And as you mentioned earlier, none of it is verified as truth six months later because things can change. It's highly inefficient because everybody along the step is, for the most part, highly educated and highly paid. And it's the repetition of the work could be slim down incredibly. Yep. You had mentioned smart contracts. Maybe let's go there because that's another component of this that can be really, really you know, disruptive to the industry. And let's talk about what that means and, and how it works. Smart contracts are nothing but, you know, think of if this event happens, then do this, else do this. And in that, you could put in some logic around, okay, if, you know, the disbursement is happening, you know, uh, today, out of you know hundred dollars in the disbursement, deduct this fee for this party, deduct mm-hmm. this fee for that party, and you know think think of you know the term sheet which the lawyers prepare and give to their clients. You could automate that entire term sheet as a smart contract, which the lawyer can sort of agree to with the client way before it ever gets there. So as soon as the money shows up, the contract executes. Everybody gets what they need to get, and you know the the seller gets funded. There's an international real estate company right now that is working on leases, smart contracts for leases, where yeah. you know they engage with their tenant and they negotiate sort of the terms and conditions and then it sits on the blockchain. And so every time a payment's made, it's kind of validated. Whatever the other requirements are of terms of the tenant and terms of the landlord, it's this way, it's sort of, sort of immediate and it's clear that we're all being held to the conditions of the lease versus you know every couple of years, you got to open it up and make sure that they're still following what they're doing on this piece of paper. Yeah. And, you know, so far, I think we've been talking about scenarios which are more retail in nature. But, you know, on the commercial side, these things multiply probably a hundred times in terms of, you know, who are some of the other parties who are involved with, say, it's a large office building. You've got elevator maintenance, you've got, you know, cleanliness and you've got, you know, HVAC guys. and, And all of these are different companies who are providing services. And at the end of the day, you know, from the renter, you're going to collect the rent. There's stuff which needs to be paid out. There are things which you can add on in a very transparent manner mm-hmm. and say, look, okay, this is a Leeds Green building, but by the way, we've got this you know more efficient operating process because of which from your base rent, you're only paying, I don't know, 1% instead of 5 for HVAC, uh, you know, 1% instead of 6 for elevators and maintenance and, and some of the other things, right? So it just mushrooms and multiplies on the commercial side. For margins. For margins, yeah. exactly. But typically in a competitive business, if margins goes in, doesn't pricing go down? So wouldn't the ultimate beneficiary likely be called the end consumers of real estate? Yeah, I mean, yeah. fundamental demand and supply is not going to change. Like given demand and supply, you know, how are you going to optimize your bottom line is really the question. And in some cases, you increase the rent. And in other cases, you try and you know get operational efficiencies. I think we go through these economic cycles of, 
we got to you know expand the top line and therefore grow and growth is everything and there are some other cycles which come along which say we got to tighten our belts and reduce costs and then you know you're on this you know journey of six seven quarters where you're just trying to reduce your cost yeah. right and because you know there's no top line growth another interesting application would be for development and you know when you've got general contractors and subcontractors and making sure that they're on time and delivering the goods and in, in doing whatever they need to do on site and managing that whole process transactions payments for your work you know liens that go on titles if they're all connected I mean, yep. there's so many applications on a, from a developer's perspective as well to manage the process and increase their margins because you you don't have to have as many boots on the ground you know managing to make sure that whoever is supposed to be there doing whatever they're supposed to be doing is actually doing it. Yeah, and and you know in that case margins are very compelling, you know, economic reason to do it, but you know also the transparency that you would get in terms of have your suppliers actually performed based on the SLAs they signed up with. If there are penalty clauses in terms of time delays, if there are penalty clauses in terms of quality of raw materials which have been put in in different parts, yeah. so do, how do you start getting that transparency yeah, and automation absolutely. in terms and of SLA for those thinking is service level agreements, yes. right? So yes. you would have these built right into the contracts that you have to provide certain quality of goods at a certain period of time, and if you do that, you get paid, and it's all kind of automated through these algorithms in the blockchain. Yeah, if lighting gets installed in three weeks. We'll pay you a hundred percent. If there's, you know, a week delay, you get only seventy percent. If there are two weeks delay, you get, you know, whatever, right? So the ability to do that and tie that back in near real time into was that work completed? Yes or no? Because it's being logged. We know what's being logged. You can have an inspector go in and say, okay, done, because they know real time, and then payments are done, right? Yeah. It's, Fairly simple. Because everything now is typically done looking backwards over a period of 30 to 60 days. Yeah, because you would contract with an inspecting agency or you'd have your own inspectors. The contractor finishes the work and they send you an email or a fax or whatever to say, hey, I've finished this work. Can you schedule your inspection guys? Inspection guys come in and and they look at stuff and then create a certificate, give the certificate to the contractor. And the contractor says, okay, now I need to submit my invoice and the certificate and everything else back to you. It's the next 30 days. You look at it. Maybe you have to go back to the inspector to validate if this is true or not to combat fraud or whatever, right? I mean, those are processes which keep layering on top of each other just because we have data asymmetry in terms of all the people working together. Mm Fascinating. If we can talk about real estate investment for a second, my understanding, and this is probably going to be wrong, but if you can clarify, tokenization allows or would allow for partial ownership of real estate. Yes. Meaning you could structure an ownership in a single asset broken down into as many single individual tokens as you want. And then theoretically, those tokens would be tradable. Yeah. You You could... Because, again, verified by the ledger who actually specifically owns that uh, one piece of it. Yeah. I mean, if you also you know extend that further, think about structured finance and, you know, go back to the 2007 crisis, one of the key reasons and, you know, real estate was a big part of it. right? And one of the key reasons was the holder of the CDO or the note had really no visibility into what the underlying asset was. How was that underlying asset performing? What seniority did they have in that instrument on that underlying asset? Because again, data symmetry is it moves across organizations. They lose the visibility. They only look at or they only have access to what whatever they, is given to whatever them. is given to them, mm-hmm. right? And so, so taking that, you know, let's suppose there's, you know, if you're in, in the investment business. Uh, you know, if you think of a commercial property or large, you know, real estate township, which is coming up, right? Residential township, you can have partial ownership on the township. You can have tokenization of individual homes. And then, you know, as you structure different financial instruments based on those assets, the ability to go back and see how that particular house, which sits in your portfolio, is performing from a payment perspective becomes really important. What your right is from a seniority perspective on that note becomes really important. So if you're one, first or second, and that makes a huge difference on the recoverability, right? So you can take junk bonds and convert them to a AAA because you've got seniority on 10% probability. But, you know, you can't take that AAA and, you know, yeah. go and resell it. And now you don't have that seniority anymore. 
think about, you know, if we're, we use the example of the development, you're going to buy a building that was recently constructed and you could go and look at the history through the blockchain of all the of all the, the the transactions that occurred and and identify, hey, wait a minute, you know, there was a serious problem with all the cement that was poured and there were weeks delay. Like what happened? You know, developers yeah. can hide all that right now, right? Like you just look at the building, you know, get your your building condition assessment and away you go. But this would give you much more transparency into the the construction and the process and any delays or or you know issues that occurred throughout the development process. Yeah. So if we're talking about tokenization from a development perspective, could you tokenize, we're talking about this theoretical development. So you would have, you know, a capital stack composed of debt, obviously to start off with, we could tokenize debt, I imagine, yep. you know, um, you know, on an investor basis, you could, you could tokenize the debt, meaning you have even various layers within our debt, of, you know, seniority, and then the equity component that goes in, as time progresses, as balances come down, you could convert it from a debt token to an equity token, yep. which gives the, well, maybe we want, wouldn't want to let developers get out. <laughs> no. <laughs> but theoretically you could, but it makes, it would, it would overcome one of the biggest hindrances of real estate is getting in and getting out is cumbersome, difficult, and time consuming. Yep. And that would solve those problems immeasurably. It would make it more of an institutional asset, tradable asset. I mean, would it also open up, not, not that it was huge in Canada right now, but crowdsourcing? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, absolutely. Well, it creates more transparency, right? Right off the bat. I mean, that was one of the challenges. Where we'll get a little bit off topic, but that was one of the challenges with Fortress, right? Is that there was a lack of transparency. The investors didn't realize what kind of risk they were really getting into and you know, not appreciating that that risk didn't match the yield that they were getting. Not that there was, you know, that Fortress really did anything wrong other than, you know, you really should be getting 20% yield on this investment, not 8%. I'm assuming with sort of this technology, that would be all out the window. You know exactly where you're sitting with any investment in, in sort of a crowdsourcing environment. Yeah, and I think, you know, some of the risk models themselves will become a lot more precise because you're not working on assumptions in large buckets anymore. You can actually price risk down at a very, very granular level. But a lot of this would require major regulatory changes. As Aaron alluded to earlier, would that be the catalyst for, for a lot of this happening? I mean, you know, going back to, to that, you know, does regulation lead changes in the industry or does regulation respond to changes in the industry? Point taken. On that subject, though, you know, get back to cryptocurrency. You know, I'm sure people have seen the article of some guy that traded his home for Bitcoin a couple of years ago, but that was, you know, one home out of uh, however many are sold. Do you see a future where we're trading real estate in cryptocurrency or near-term future? Crypto, no. Digital version of fiat currencies, yes. Digital version of of. Crypto, uh, of fiat reg- currency. Uh, okay, so, okay. Right. Fiat currency Being on the Canadian, blockchain. On the blockchain. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay. And then obviously this is, you know, delving into a crystal ball territory. What do you think a time frame for adoption would be for, for that, uh, that shift? It's starting. It's happening now. I can't talk a lot about some of the projects we're doing, but we're working with some sovereigns on converting their currency into a blockchain-based digital currency. We know um, the Bank of Canada has been working. There's Project Jasper, which they've been doing now. They've done three phases of Project Jasper, which is exploring how they can use the blockchain, a blockchain-based version of the Canadian dollar for interbank settlement and exchanges. So, you know, the day isn't far. I think we'll see the first country or one of the first countries which has recently converted its currency to crypto is the Marshall Islands. Hmm. Really easy in smaller, more contained environments where there aren't that many sort of external linkages, but uh, it's starting to happen. And who knows? I, I can't. I don't know if I can't give a time frame. It's very hard, but we we see it happening. It's just it's going to be a snowball effect. When um, like we we keep doing this, and, I, and this was not on purpose, but every time I open my mouth, I seem to have another 
usage of blockchain. I was just thinking the internet of things, right? This challenge where your whole house is connected, but it, yeah. how do you hack into it? If it's on a blockchain, it becomes you know much more protected and you can have your coffee maker and your front door lock and your cameras and all sort of connected on this thing and you don't have to worry too much. But we don't need to go down that path, but it sounds like you know blockchain is going to be something that just becomes an interaction with every human being, no matter what you're doing, no matter where you are, not just in the commercial real estate space, but, but basically any kind of facet, whether it's your own currency or Internet of Things in your home, or or you know contracts when you sign for employment versus purchasing whatever it is, and is that kind of where you think it's going? Like eventually it'll just be kind of like the internet. Like back in the nineties, the internet was this weird thing, and now exactly. it's now it's just it, you. Every single thing you do in your life somehow, some way, is connected to the internet, right? No, exactly. I like to characterize you know blockchain as the second coming of the internet. This mm-hmm. is you know the next version. It will. It should. It, and it must become invisible. You know, at a protocol level, it's far too complicated for, you know, the general people to understand it. And they, they shouldn't need to understand it, right? Just like we don't care about, you know, TCPIP protocols yeah. when we're using it. Uh, Think of the, the World Wide Web, right? Yeah, I mean, it was you, this, you don't understand this crazy thing, yeah, back in the 90s. So, so on that topic then, uh, obviously blockchain, a few of the uses we discussed are meant to prevent fraud, as in you're converting it to a digital format that uh, verifies the truth. Is it hackable? Is, would there be a new version of fraud where people would be attacking the underlying framework? Everything's hackable. So we would see, I guess, uh, a disruption in uh, fraudsters. They would have to adapt or die to a new world. Poor guys. <laughs> Poor <Yeah>. guys. Um <laughs> Well, and I guess one of the big things with blockchain is the it makes it more difficult for for fraudulent activity. And part of that, again, maybe back to the the concept of this validation, you know, and incenting participants to validate the data. And I guess maybe that's where I get a little, I still get lost a bit. And maybe we'll use this use the developer example as, for this discussion. So, you know, the developer's got this blockchain. He's incented all of his trades to participate because they'll make money or or save money, however it may be. But who would be validating that independently, verifying that the data is accurate and that the people that are participating in that particular blockchain are truly doing what they said they're going to do. And how do you, and that's my point is, you know, are you paying other people to do it as well? Is it a platform where there's a business that has these, you know, they're hired a bunch of people to do it themselves or, you know, how does that work? I think, you know, a few different models could evolve. One model could be a service provider, which sort of operates just like a telecom companies like Mm -hmm. Rogers and, and whoever else is out there where they sort of own and operate the fabric and then all you care about is having your apps on it. And you create you create the rules for your particular blockchain right. and then That's their right. job is to enforce those rules and validate and independently verify yeah. all the transactions and the tokenization that occurs. Yep. Yeah. So so that could be one you know, if you go back a few years there were you know, going back to how the internet sort of evolved, we will have we, we could have, you know, the likes of early Amazon coming in saying, I provide this service. Mm. It works on the internet and all you need to do is log on to the internet to actually come and agree on the service. So, you know, maybe there's a there's a software company out there or, or some solution provider out there saying, look, here's a solution for real estate in Canada. And if you come onto this platform, I'll give you all of these apps and all this functionality and then you can conduct your business on the blockchain. So, uh, it's an open market out there, the different models which are sort of evolving. And even though the blockchain's founded in truth, it'd be a company putting their umbrella of truth onto the framework that they're providing. Let's separate the protocol from the data, right? So someone's going to say, you know, here are the different containers, right? This is how you put stuff on the containers, which is how we would agree that what is in the containers, right? then what you put on the containers is your business. No one else needs to care or know about that. Hmm. Basic idea of garbage in, garbage out. You're going to... Yeah. yeah. No. Garbage in, garbage out is absolutely true for blockchains as well. <laughs> I, I can see purchase and sale agreements being one of the earlier adopters, right? In this you know, imaginary world where there's a website, you go on, I'm selling my property. I'm going to, you know, create the 15 things. There's the due diligence period, a conditional period, a waiver period, and it's yeah. all just kind of, and you agree to it as the purchaser. And now it's all kind of in, in, embedded into this blockchain. And, you know, there's no, you know, dispute about what's going on. Then, of course, then it goes to the lawyer and the lawyer is now connected and they can see all the data that was required and yeah. however it may work. 
and the back and forth which keeps going on, especially in the real estate, oh, uh, retail man. side, right? When they're bidding for property in those wars, or, right? Or the best is when we get a we'll get a purchase and sale agreement. It's been faxed back and forth thirty five times. You, you can't read can't it. Read it. Yeah. They marked up by hand and uh, and handwritten. It's and then everybody's got to initial every change, right? Like it's <laughs> it can be it can be a mess. So that would be that might be an easy low hanging fruit. But not only would it contribute to cleanliness, but just the speeding up the process. I mean, you know, Aaron and I work strictly on commercial mortgages and the timeframes involved in, uh, you know, first discussing a deal to closing one, they can drag on, drag on for months. On the residential side, uh, it is a much faster process, you know, on the purchase and the the financing of it. But to see the timeframes close would be, you know, hugely beneficial, impactful for our business. I mean, I remember when I started in commercial real estate, I was speaking with an older broker. And he said, the experience you get now, and this is when personal computers are common. So he said, the experience you get now from having the internet and having personal computers means it would be like conducting real estate for three years in the 80s is worth one year in uh, the 2000s, just because everything happens faster. You can fax, you can fax an APS over to somebody rather than driving it over to their house. It speeds up the, the way business is conducted, so you learn more. And this would have that effect just amplified. I find it interesting, you know, both of you have used the word fax so many times in the last few minutes. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it's probably the last it. industry which still works on fax, uh, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is, it's, there is some irony that it's a commercial real estate podcast talking about, you know, these this early adoption of this brand new technology when we were probably the last industry to adopt it in reality, right? Yeah. The whole world will be using it and we'll be, be, we'll be fighting, Faxing. kicking and screwing still be faxing things back yeah. and forth yeah yeah i'm not gonna lie i receive three deals a year by fax probably yeah uh, handwritten <laughs> handwritten rent rolls and uh, yeah operating statements yeah, yeah. yeah. I, but i guess that's partially just uh i guess a, a cultural shift in terms of you know people do business for a long way and at this point in their career they own all the real estate and they don't want to change so uh, i'm sure that will also be a factor in adopting blockchain just simply the passage of time and and people uh you know jumping on board yeah, I mean, it's it's just a question of expectations, right? Uh, the expectations are just changing. Like, you know, one industry which really where you can see the pace at which the changes actually become ubiquitous is music, right? I remember my first music collection was on cassettes. And then, you know, cassettes got replaced by, I don't know, there was a blip somewhere in between called MDs, mini discs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And then the CDs and, and the DVDs. And, you know, now try going out and buying a CD player in the market. You don't get those anymore easily, right? It's all digital. It's 100% digital. And by the way, now you don't even have the need to store digital music on your device because you want to stream it all from Pandora, one of the Spotify type services out there. Mm-hmm. So somebody who was born in the year 2000 would not know what a cassette player was. Or maybe even a CD player. Even a CD player for that matter. So so people who are coming into the real estate market now, the people who are turning 20, 25, all they know is email, all they know is the internet. They don't know fax. You show them a fax machine, they wouldn't understand what that is, right? They laugh. They laugh. Really? Right? Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, the millennials and the team get annoyed when uh, <laughs> fax comes up. So, so it's not a question of you know what's going to change the industry. Like the world is changing. I mean, you got to adopt. I mean, there's just no other way. So, Abhishek, I wanted to ask you about about REITs specifically because, as we talked about earlier, tokenization of real estate would allow it to be tradable. But of course, REIT units are already tradable. You can you know get in and out daily if you wanted. So how would blockchain transition the way that people trade REIT units? It just makes it a lot more transparent, right? It's just, you know, you know exactly what's in that package. You know exactly what units are there. You know exactly how the units are performing. You can get early indicators to what is the future performance of this particular package which you bought. And then going back to, you know, tokenization for the REIT administrators themselves. I mean, it's a completely different way of looking at things, right? From their operating cost perspective, as well as what they can offer from a risk management standpoint on that product. So, you know, I suspect the way we look at, you know, AAA, AA, or, you know, whatever ratings you have on REITs, it will be a lot more dynamic than, you know, it's a periodic set 
and you know your yield may change over a period of time. Now you can get sort of early indicators of this is where the yield is going to be. Your pricing is going to be a lot more precise because of that. Rather than waiting for quarterly reports and yes. digesting the data and then having that in get you know impacted or implied in the pricing. So other than than that, or specifically the entire portfolio's performance, as you talked about, every contractor will be feeding in information to the portfolio in terms of you know capex. And then you you get a capex in virtually real time. If a tenant was to leave in between quarterly reports, you would see that there was a slight reduction in in gross income. Yeah. Would you see anything like responsive flash trading? Because now you're getting faster information. So would you see flash trading on the other side be reacting to this more timely information? Yeah, I think the markets will change and evolve. I mean, it's really analogous to, you know, 15 years ago, you had mutual funds managed by these fund managers who would sort of go through and look at the reports and, you know, forecast what's going to happen on that. And then, you know, suddenly with the advent of ETFs and, you know, completely index-based trading options, that room for the fund manager and the effectiveness of, you know, actively or passively managed funds. I mean, if look, just look at the performance of a purely index-based ETF versus, you know, managed funds. I mean, in most cases, the, the index overperforms and, and far outperforms what these funds do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the difference in terms of, you know, I have this fundamental manual process where I use judgment, I collect information and I synthesize that information. It just takes time. And for most cases, that information is one asymmetric Two, you know, the timeliness of that information and my ability to actually forecast based on something which was collected six months ago is very different than I'm getting real-time information. All of my logic associated with, you know, how I think about future price forecasts and what's going to happen in terms of my collections on the units, for example, is completely different. Like these are two completely different models. One is supercharged and the other one's still, you know, a, a 15-year-old business model. So which mm-hmm. one is going to be more effective in the marketplace, more efficient from an operations perspective and, you know, offer more value to investors? Hmm. My... uh my brain is full. <laughs> I was just thinking that. <laughs> yeah. I got nothing else. Yeah. But I think if, if we had Abhishek on, uh, not even a year from now, six months, we have him oh, on every shoot. six yeah, months. I feel, like, new to I feel like in two months from now, all of a sudden it'll have all changed, right? So okay. Yeah, it's fast moving. So we end off each discussion by asking if you can invest in one asset class in one city, what would it be? But we're going to change it today, given the topic matter. If you could invest in a startup uh, in one blockchain technology as it relates to real estate, what would it be and why? I think it'll be, you know, some provider of services, which is actually putting some of these land registries and records on a blockchain on tokens and, you know, really open source and allowing developers to develop different apps for it. I mean, that's the type of model which is needed where you'll get this, you'll start getting stickiness in terms of the user communities who want to come together to actually use that for their business purpose. Hmm. So I guess I'll, we'll watch for that and invest ourselves, but uh, yeah. <laughs> this is, this Just, is early uh, days. Let me know when you find that company, yeah. okay? Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks very much, Avishak. This has been mind-opening. I think my understanding of the of the technology has grown exponentially just in the last hour discussing it with you. So I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time. And like Adam said, we're definitely going to want to have you back and just talk about the evolution and the you know just what's transpired over time. Keep everybody apprised of the, you know, just the way that this technology is being implemented. Oh, thank you for having me. I look forward to coming back. We want to thank our listeners and we want to thank our sponsor, First National. You know, we always say share the episode if you enjoy it, but this one in particular would be a great one to share given that people you're sharing it with likely don't know this information. You can pretend to be smarter just by sharing it. <laughs> yeah, you claim that you fully understood everything. That's <laughs> uh, the best way. Thanks again, Abhishek. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.